Welcome to the 42nd reading of John Calvin's Institutes of the Christian Religion, translated by Henry Beveridge. We are continuing this reading with Book 4, Chapter 5, Section 19. This Reformation audio resource is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. Many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, CDs, and much more, at great discounts are on the web at www.swrb.com. Also, please consider, pray, and act upon the important truths found in the following quotation by Charles Spurgeon. As the Apostle says to Timothy, So also he says to everyone, Give yourself to reading. He who will not use the thoughts of other men's brains proves he has no brains of his own. You need to read. Renounce as much as you will all light literature, but study as much as possible sound theological works, especially the Puritanic writers and expositions of the Bible. The best way for you to spend your leisure is to be either reading or praying. And now to SWRB's reading of Institutes of the Christian Religion by John Calvin, which we hope you will find to be a great blessing and which we pray draws you near to the Lord Jesus Christ, for he is the way, the truth, and the life, and no man cometh unto the Father but by him. John 14:6. Section 19. Of the revenue which they derive from lands and property, what else can I say than what I have already said, and is manifest before the eyes of all? We see with what kind of fidelity the greatest portion is administered by those who are called bishops and abbots. What madness is it to seek ecclesiastical order here? Is it becoming in those whose life ought to have been a singular example of frugality, modesty, continence, and humility, to rival princes in the number of their attendants, the splendor of their dwellings, the delicacies of dressing and feasting? Can anything be more contrary to the duty of those whom the eternal and inviolable edict of God forbids to long for filthy lucre and orders to be contented with simple food not only to lay hands on villages and castles but also invade the largest provinces and even seize on empire itself? If they despise the word of God, what answer will they give to the ancient canons of councils which decree that the bishop shall have a little dwelling not far from the church, a frugal table, and furniture? What answer will they give to the declaration of the Council of Aquileia, in which poverty in the priests of the Lord is pronounced glorious? For the injunction which Jerome gives to Napoleon to make the poor and strangers acquainted with his table, and have Christ with them as a guest, they would perhaps repudiate as too austere. What he immediately adds, it would shame them to acknowledge, viz. that the glory of a bishop is to provide for the sustenance of the poor, that the disgrace of all priests is to study their own riches. This they cannot admit without covering themselves with disgrace. But it is unnecessary here to press them so hard, since all we wished was to demonstrate that the legitimate order of deacons has long ago been abolished, and that they can no longer plume themselves on this order in commendation of their church. This, I think, has been completely established. Chapter 6 Of the Primacy of the Romish Sea There are seventeen sections. Section 1 Hitherto we have reviewed those ecclesiastical orders which existed in the government of the primitive church, but afterwards corrupted by time and thereafter more and more vitiated, now only retain the name of the papal church, and are, in fact, nothing but mere masks, so that the contrast will enable the pious reader to judge what kind of church that is for revolting from which we are charged with schism. But on the head and crown of the whole matter, I mean the primacy of the Roman see, 
from which they undertake to prove that the Catholic Church is to be found only with them, we have not yet touched, because it did not take its origin either in the institution of Christ or the practice of the early Church, as did those other parts in regard to which we have shown, that though they were ancient in their origin, they in process of time altogether degenerated, nay, assumed an entirely new form." and yet they endeavor to persuade the world that the chief and only bond of ecclesiastical unity is to adhere to the Roman see and continue in subjection to it. I say the prop on which they chiefly lean when they would deprive us of the church and arrogate it to themselves is that they retain the head on which the unity of the church depends and without which it must necessarily be rent and go to pieces. For they regard the church as a kind of mutilated trunk, if it be not subject to the Romish see as its head. Accordingly, when they debate about their hierarchy, they always set out with the axiom. The Roman pontiff, as the vicar of Christ, who is the head of the church, presides in his stead over the universal church, and the church is not rightly constituted unless that see hold the primacy over all others. The nature of this claim must therefore be considered, that we may not omit anything which pertains to the proper government of the church. Section 2. The question then may be thus stated. Is it necessary for the true order of the hierarchy, as they term it, or of ecclesiastical order, that one see should surpass the others in dignity and power so as to be the head of the whole body? We subject the church to unjust laws if we lay this necessity upon her without sanction from the word of God. Therefore, if our opponents would prove what they maintain, it behoves them, first of all, to show that this economy was instituted by Christ. For this purpose they refer to the office of high priest under the law, and the supreme jurisdiction which God appointed at Jerusalem. But the solution is easy, and it is manifold if one does not satisfy them. First, no reason obliges us to extend what was useful in one nation to the whole world. Nay, the cases of one nation and of the whole world are widely different. Because the Jews were hemmed in on every side by idolaters, God fixed the seat of his worship in the central region of the earth, that they might not be distracted by a variety of religions. There he appointed one priest to whom they might all look up, that they might be the better kept in unity. But now when the true religion has been diffused over the whole globe, who sees not that it is altogether absurd to give the government of East and West to one individual? It is just as if one were to contend that the whole world ought to be governed by one prefect, because one district has not several prefects. But there is still another reason why that institution ought not to be drawn into a precedent. Everyone knows that the high priest was a type of Christ. Now the priesthood being transferred, that right must also be transferred. To whom, then, was it transferred? Certainly not to the Pope, as he dares impudently to boast when he arrogates this title to himself, but to Christ, who, as he alone holds the office without vicar or successor, does not resign the honor to any other. For this priesthood consists not in doctrine only, but in the propitiation which Christ made by his death, and the intercession which he now makes with the Father. Hebrews 7, verse 11. Section 3. That example, therefore, which is seen to have been temporary, they have no right to bind upon us as by perpetual law. In the New Testament there is nothing which they can produce in confirmation of their opinion, but its having been said to one, quote, Thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, unquote, Matthew 16, verse 18. Again, quote, Simon, son of Jonas, lovest thou me, unquote, quote, feed my lambs, unquote, John 21, verse 15. But to give strength to these proofs, they must, in the first place, 
show that to him who is ordered to feed the flock of Christ, power is given over all churches, and that to bind and loose is nothing else than to preside over the whole world. But as Peter had received a command from the Lord, so he exhorts all other presbyters to feed the church. 1 Peter 5, verse 2. Hence, we are entitled to infer that, by that expression of Christ, nothing more was given to Peter than to others, or that the right which Peter had received, he communicated equally to others. But not to argue to no purpose, we elsewhere have, from the lips of Christ himself, a clear exposition of what it is to bind and loose. It is just to retain and remit sins. John 10, verse 23. The mode of loosing and binding is explained throughout Scripture, but especially in that passage in which Paul declares that the ministers of the gospel are commissioned to reconcile men to God, and at the same time to exercise discipline over those who reject the benefit. 2 Corinthians 5, verse 18 and 10, verse 16. Section 4. How unbecomingly they rest the passages of binding and loosing I have elsewhere glanced at, and will in a short time more fully explain. It may now be worthwhile merely to see what they can extract from our Savior's celebrated answer to Peter. He promised him the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and said that whatever things he bound on earth should be bound in heaven. Matthew 16, verse 19. The moment we are agreed as to the meaning of the keys and the mode of binding, all dispute will cease. For the Pope will willingly omit that office assigned to the apostles, which, full of labor and toil, would interfere with his luxuries without giving any gain. Since heaven is open to us by the doctrine of the gospel, it is by an elegant metaphor distinguished by the name of keys. Again, the only mode in which men are bound and loosed is, in the latter case, when they are reconciled to God by faith, and in the former, more strictly bound by unbelief. Were this all that the Pope arrogated to himself, I believe there would be none to envy him or stir the question. But because this laborious and very far from lucrative succession is by no means pleasing to the Pope, the dispute immediately arises as to what it was that Christ promised to Peter. From the very nature of the case, I infer that nothing more is denoted than the dignity which cannot be separated from the burden of the apostolic office. For, admitting the definition which I have given, and it cannot without effrontery be rejected, nothing is here given to Peter that was not common to him with his colleagues. On any other view, not only would injustice be done to their persons, but the very majesty of the doctrine would be impaired. They object. But what prey is gained by striking against this stone? The utmost they can make out is that as the preaching of the same gospel was enjoined on all the apostles, so the power of binding and loosing was bestowed upon them in common. Christ, they say, constituted Peter prince of the whole church when he promised to give him the keys. But what he then promised to one, he elsewhere delivers, and, as it were, hands over to all the rest. If the same right which was promised to one is bestowed upon all, in what respect is that one superior to his colleagues? He excels, they say, in this, that he receives both in common and by himself what is given to the others in common only. What if I should answer with Cyprian and Augustine that Christ did not do this to prefer one to the other, but in order to commend the unity of his church? For Cyprian thus speaks, quote, In the person of one man he gave the keys to all, that he might denote the unity of all. The rest, therefore, were the same that Peter was, being admitted to an equal participation of honor and power, but a beginning is made from unity that the church of Christ may be shown to be one, unquote. Augustine's words are, quote, Had not the mystery of the church been in Peter, our Lord would not have said to him, I will give thee the keys. For if this was said to Peter, the church has them not. 
that if the church has them, then when Peter received the keys, he represented the whole church, unquote. Again, quote, all were asked, but Peter alone answers, Thou art the Christ. And it is said to him, I will give thee the keys, as if he alone had received the power of loosing and binding, whereas he both spoke for all and received in common with all, being, as it were, the representative of unity. One received for all, because there is unity in all, unquote. Section 5. But we nowhere read of its being said to any other, quote, Thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, unquote. Matthew 16, verse 18. As if Christ then affirmed anything else of Peter than Paul, and Peter himself affirm of all Christians. Ephesians 2, verse 20, and 1 Peter 2, verse 5. The former describes Christ as the chief cornerstone, on whom are built all who grow up into a holy temple in the Lord. The latter describes us as living stones who are founded on that elect and precious stone, and being so joined and compacted, are united to our God and to each other. Peter, they say, is above others, because the name was specially given to him. I willingly concede to Peter the honor of being placed among the first in the building of the church, or, if they prefer it, of being the first among the faithful. But I will not allow them to infer from this that he has a primacy over others. For what kind of inference is this? Peter surpasses others in fervid zeal, in doctrine, in magnanimity. Therefore, he has power over them. As if we might not, with greater plausibility, infer that Andrew is prior to Peter in order, because he preceded him in time and brought him to Christ. John 1, verses 40 and 42. But this I omit. Let Peter have the preeminence. Still, there is a great difference between the honor of rank and the possession of power. We see that the apostles usually left it to Peter to address the meeting, and in some measure take precedence in relating, exhorting, admonishing, but we nowhere read anything at all of power. Section 6. Though we are not yet come to that part of the discussion, I would merely observe at present how futilely those argue who, out of the mere name of Peter, would rear up a governing power over the whole church. For the ancient quibble which they at first used to give a color, viz., the church is founded upon Peter because it is said, quote, on this rock, unquote, etc., is undeserving of notice, not to say of refutation. Some of the fathers so expounded. But when the whole of Scripture is repugnant to the exposition, why is their authority brought forward in opposition to God? Nay, why do we contend about the meaning of these words, as if it were obscure or ambiguous, when nothing can be more clear and certain? Peter had confessed in his own name, and that of his brethren, that Christ was the Son of God. Matthew 16, verse 16. On this rock, Christ builds his church, because it is the only foundation. As Paul says, quote, other foundation than this can no man lay, unquote. 1 Corinthians 3, verse 11. Therefore I do not here repudiate the authority of the fathers, because I am destitute of passages from them to prove what I say, were I disposed to quote them. But as I have observed, I am unwilling to annoy my readers by debating so clear a matter, especially since the subject has long ago been fully handled and expounded by our writers. Section 7. And yet, in truth, none can solve this question better than Scripture, if we compare all the passages in which it shows what office and power Peter held among the apostles, how he acted among them, how he was received by them. Acts 15, verse 7. Run over all these passages, and the utmost you will find is that Peter was one of twelve, their equal and colleague, not their master. He indeed brings the matter before the council when anything is to be done, and advises as to what is necessary that he at the same time listens to the others, not only conceding to them an opportunity of expressing their sentiments, 
but allowing them to decide, and when they have decided, he follows and obeys. When he writes to pastors, he does not command authoritatively as a superior, but makes them his colleagues, and courteously advises as equals are wont to do. 1 Peter 5, verse 1. When he is accused of having gone into the Gentiles, though the accusation is unfounded, he replies to it and clears himself. Acts 11, verse 3. Being ordered by his colleagues to go with John into Samaria, he declines not. Acts 8, verse 14. The apostles, by sending him, declare that they by no means regard him as a superior, while he, by obeying and undertaking the embassy committed to him, confesses that he is associated with them and has no authority over them. But if none of these facts existed, the one epistle to the Galatians would easily remove all doubt, there being almost two chapters in which the whole for which Paul contends is that in regard to the honor of the apostleship, he is the equal of Peter, Galatians 1, verse 18, and 2, verse 8. Hence he states that he went to Peter not to acknowledge subjection, but only to make their agreement and doctrine manifest to all, that Peter himself asked no acknowledgment of the kind, but gave him the right hand of fellowship, that they might be common laborers in the vineyard, that not less grace was bestowed on him among the Gentiles than on Peter among the Jews. In fine, that Peter, when he was not acting with strict fidelity, was rebuked by him and submitted to the rebuke. Galatians 2, verse 11. All these things make it manifest, either that there was an equality between Paul and Peter, or at least that Peter had no more authority over the rest than they had over him. This point, as I have said, Paul handles professedly in order that no one might give a preference over him in respect of apostleship to Peter or John, who were colleagues, not masters. Section 8. But were I to concede to them what they asked with regard to Peter, viz., that he was the chief of the apostles and surpassed the others in dignity, there is no ground for making a universal rule out of a special example, or resting a single fact into a perpetual enactment, seeing that the two things are widely different. One was chief among the apostles, just because they were few in number. If one man presided over twelve, will it follow that one ought to preside over a hundred thousand? That twelve had one among them to direct all is nothing strange. Nature admits the human mind requires that in every meeting, though all are equal in power, there should be one as a kind of moderator to whom the others should look up. There is no senate without a consul, no bench of judges without a president or a chancellor, no college without a provost, no company without a master. Thus, there would be no absurdity were we to confess that the apostles had conferred such a primacy on Peter. But an arrangement, which is effectual among a few, must not be forthwith transferred to the whole world, which no one man is able to govern. But, say they, it is observed that not less in nature as a whole than in each of its parts there is one supreme head. Proof of this, it pleases them to derive from cranes and bees, which always place themselves under the guidance of one, not of several. I admit the examples which they produce, but do bees flock together from all parts of the world to choose one queen? Each queen is contented with her own hive. So among cranes each flock has its own king. What can they prove from this? Except that each church ought to have its bishop. They refer us to the examples of states, quoting from Homer. Greek words, Omicron, Epsilon, Kappa, Alpha, Lambda, Alpha, Theta, Omicron, Nu, Pi, Omicron, Lambda, Epsilon, Kappa, Omicron, Iota, Rho, Alpha, Nu, Iota, Eta. Oak, Alphon Palakorani, quote, a many-headed rule is not good, unquote, and other passages to the same effect from heathen writers in commendation of monarchy. The answer is easy. 
Monarchy is not lauded by Homer's Ulysses, or by others, as if one individual ought to govern the whole world. But they mean to intimate that one kingdom does not admit of two kings, and that empire, as one expresses it, cannot bear a partner. Section 9. Be it, however, as they will have it, though the thing is most absurd, be it, that it were good and useful for the whole world to be under one monarchy, I will not, therefore, admit that the same thing should take effect in the government of the church. Her only head is Christ, under whose government we are all united to each other, according to that order and form of policy which he himself has prescribed. Wherefore, they offer an egregious insult to Christ, when under this pretext they would have one man to preside over the whole church, seeing the church can never be without a head. Quote, even Christ, from whom the whole body fitly joined together, and compacted by that which every joint supplieth, according to the effectual working in the measure of every part, maketh increase of the body. Unquote. Ephesians 4, verses 15 and 16. See how all men without exception are placed in the body, while the honor and name of head is left to Christ alone. See how to each member is assigned a certain measure, a finite and limited function, while both the perfection of grace and the supreme power of government reside only in Christ. I am not unaware of the cavilling objection which they are wont to urge, viz. that Christ is properly called the only head, because he alone reigns by his own authority and in his own name, but that there is nothing in this to prevent what they call another ministerial head from being under him and acting as his substitute. But this cavil cannot avail them until they previously show that this office was ordained by Christ. For the apostle teaches that the whole subministration is diffused through the members, while the power flows from one celestial head. Or, if they will have it more plainly, since scripture testifies that Christ is head, and claims this honor for himself alone, it ought not to be transferred to any other than him whom Christ himself has made his vicegerent. But not only is there no passage to this effect, but it can be amply refuted by many passages. Section 10. Paul sometimes depicts a living image of the church, but makes no mention of a single head. On the contrary, we may infer from his description that it is foreign to the institution of Christ. Christ, by his ascension, took away his visible presence from us, and yet he ascended that he might fill all things. Now, therefore, he is present in the church, and always will be. When Paul would show the mode in which he exhibits himself, he calls our attention to the ministerial offices which he employs. Quote, unto every one of us is given grace according to the measure of the gift of Christ, unquote. Quote, and he gave some apostles, and some prophets, and some evangelists, and some pastors and teachers, unquote. Ephesians 4, verses 10, 7, and 11. Why does he not say that one presided over all to act as his substitute? The passage particularly required this, and it ought not on any account to have been omitted if it had been true. Christ, he says, is present with us. How? By the ministry of men whom he appointed over the government of the church. Why not rather by a ministerial head whom he appointed his substitute? He speaks of unity, but it is in God and in the faith of Christ. He attributes nothing to men but a common ministry and a special mode to each. Why, when thus commending unity, does he not, after saying, quote, one body, one spirit, even as ye are called in one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, unquote, Ephesians 4, verse 4, immediately add, one supreme pontiff to keep the church in unity. Nothing could have been said more aptly if the case had really been so. Let that passage be diligently pondered. And there will be no doubt that Paul there meant to give a complete representation of that sacred and ecclesiastical government to which posterity have given the name of hierarchy.
Not only does he not place a monarchy among ministers, but even intimates that there is none. There can also be no doubt that he meant to express the mode of connection by which believers unite with Christ, the head. There he not only makes no mention of a ministerial head, but attributes a particular operation to each of the members according to the measure of grace distributed to each. Nor is there any ground for subtle philosophical comparisons between the celestial and the earthly hierarchy. For it is not safe to be wise above measure with regard to the former, and in constituting the latter the only type which it behoves us to follow is that which our Lord himself has delineated in his own word. Section 11. I will now make them another concession, which they will never obtain from men of sound mind, viz. that the primacy of the church was fixed in Peter with a view of remaining forever by perpetual succession. Still, how will they prove that his see was so fixed at Rome that whosoever becomes bishop of that city is to preside over the whole world? By what authority do they annex this dignity to a particular place when it was given without any mention of place? Peter, they say, lived and died at Rome. What did Christ himself do? Did he not discharge his episcopate while he lived and complete the office of the priesthood by dying at Jerusalem? The prince of pastors, the chief shepherd, the head of the church, could not procure honor for a place, and Peter, so far his inferior, could. Is not this worse than childish trifling? Christ conferred the honor of primacy on Peter. Peter had his see at Rome, therefore he fixed the seat of the primacy there. In this way the Israelites of old must have placed the seat of the primacy in the wilderness, where Moses, the chief teacher and prince of prophets, discharged his ministry and died. Section 12. Let us see, however, how admirably they reason. Peter, they say, had the first place among the apostles. Therefore the church in which he sat ought to have the privilege. But where did he first sit? At Antioch, they say. Therefore the church of Antioch justly claims the primacy. They acknowledge that she was once the first, but that Peter, by removing from it, transferred the honor which he had brought with him to Rome. For there is extant under the name of Pope Marcellus a letter to the presbyters of Antioch in which he says, quote, The see of Peter at the outset was with you, and was afterwards by the order of the Lord translated hither, unquote. Thus the church of Antioch, which was once the first, yielded to the see of Rome. But by what oracle did that good man learn that the Lord had so ordered? For if the question is to be determined in regular form, they must say whether they hold the privilege to be personal or real or mixed. One of the three it must be. If they say personal, then it has nothing to do with place. If real, then when once given to a place, it is not lost by the death or departure of the person. It remains that they must hold it to be mixed. Then the mere consideration of place is not sufficient unless the person also correspond. Let them choose which they will. I will forthwith infer and easily prove that Rome has no ground to arrogate the primacy. Section 13. However be it so, that the primacy have been, as they vainly allege, transferred from Antioch to Rome. Why did not Antioch retain the second place? For if Rome has the first, simply because Peter had his see there at the end of his life, to which place should the second be given sooner than to where he first had his see? How comes it, then, that Alexandria takes precedence of Antioch? How can the church of a disciple be superior to the see of Peter? If honor is due to a church according to the dignity of its founder, what shall we say of other churches? Paul names three individuals who seem to be pillars, these James, Peter, and John, Galatians 2, verse 9. If, in honor of Peter, the first place is given to the Roman see, do not the churches of Ephesus and Jerusalem, where John and James were fixed, deserve the second and third places? But in ancient times, Jerusalem held the last place among the patriarchates, and Ephesus was not able to secure even the lowest corner. 
Other churches, too, have passed away, churches which Paul founded and over which the apostles presided. The See of Mark, who was only one of the disciples, has obtained honor. Let them either confess that that arrangement was preposterous, or let them concede that it is not always true that each church is entitled to the degree of honor which its founder possessed. Section 14. But I do not see that any credit is due to their allegation of Peter's occupation of the Roman See. Certainly it is that the statement of Eusebius that he presided over it for twenty-five years is easily refuted. For it appears from the first and second chapters of Galatians that he was at Jerusalem about twenty years after the death of Christ and afterwards came to Antioch. How long he remained here is uncertain. Gregory counts seven and Eusebius twenty-five years. But from our Savior's death to the end of Nero's reign, under which they state that he was put to death, will be found only thirty-seven years. For our Lord suffered at the eighteenth year of the reign of Tiberius. If you cut off the twenty years during which, as Paul testifies, Peter dwelt at Jerusalem, there will remain at most seventeen years, and these must be divided between his two episcopates. If he dwelt long at Antioch, his see at Rome must have been of short duration. This we may demonstrate still more clearly. Paul wrote to the Romans while he was on his journey to Jerusalem, where he was apprehended and conveyed to Rome. Romans 15, verses 15 and 16. It is therefore probable that this letter was written four years before his arrival at Rome. Still, there is no mention of Peter, as there certainly would have been if he had been ruling that church. Nay, in the end of the epistle, where he enumerates a long list of individuals whom he orders to be saluted, and in which it may be supposed he includes all who were known to him, he says nothing at all of Peter. To men of sound judgment, there is no need here of a long and subtle demonstration. The nature of the case itself and the whole subject of the epistle proclaim that he ought not to have passed over Peter if he had been at Rome. Section 15. Paul is afterwards conveyed as a prisoner to Rome. Luke relates that he was received by the brethren but says nothing of Peter. From Rome he writes to many churches. He even sends salutations from certain individuals but does not by a single word intimate that Peter was then there. Who, pray, will believe that he would have said nothing of him if he had been present? Nay, in the epistle to the Philippians, after saying that he had no one who cared for the work of the Lord so faithful as Timothy, he complains that, quote, all seek their own, unquote. Philippians 2, verse 20. And to Timothy he makes the more grievous complaint that no man was present at his first defense, that all men forsook him. 2 Timothy 4, verse 16. Where then was Peter? If they say that he was at Rome, how disgraceful the charge which Paul brings against him of being a deserter of the gospel. For he is speaking of believers, since he adds, quote, The Lord lay it not to their charge, unquote. At what time, therefore, and how long did Peter hold that see? The uniform opinion of authors is that he governed that church until his death. But these authors are not agreed as to who was his successor. Some say Linus, others Clement. And they relate many absurd fables concerning a discussion between him and Simon Magus. Nor does Augustine, when treating of superstition, disguise the fact that owing to an opinion rashly entertained, it had become customary at Rome to fast on the day on which Peter carried away the palm from Simon Magus. In short, the affairs of that period are so involved from the variety of opinions that credit is not to be given rashly to anything we read concerning it. And yet, from this agreement of authors, I do not dispute that he died there. But, that he was a bishop, particularly for a long period, I cannot believe. I do not, however, attach much importance to the point, since Paul testifies that the apostleship of Peter pertained especially to the Jews, but his only specially to us. 
Therefore, in order that that compact which they made between themselves, nay, that the arrangement of the Holy Spirit may be firmly established among us, we ought to pay more regard to the apostleship of Paul than to that of Peter, since the Holy Spirit, in allotting them different provinces, destined Peter for the Jews and Paul for us. Let the Romanists, therefore, seek their primacy somewhere else than in the word of God, which gives not the least foundation for it. Section 16. Let us now come to the primitive church, that it may also appear that our opponents plume themselves on its support, not less falsely and unadvisedly than on the testimony of the word of God, when they lay it down as an axiom that the unity of the church cannot be maintained unless there be one supreme head on earth whom all the members should obey, and that accordingly our Lord gave the primacy to Peter, and thereafter by right of succession to the see of Rome, there to remain even to the end, they assert that this has always been observed from the beginning. But since they improperly rest many passages, I would first premise that I deny not that the early Christians uniformly give high honor to the Roman Church, and speak of it with reverence. This, I think, is owing chiefly to three causes. The opinion which had prevailed, I know not how, that that church was founded and constituted by the ministry of Peter, had great effect in procuring influence and authority. Hence, in the East, it was, as a mark of honor, designated the Apostolic See. Secondly, as the seed of empire was there, and it was for this reason to be presumed that the most distinguished for learning, prudence, skill, and experience were there more than elsewhere, account was justly taken of the circumstance, lest the celebrity of the city and the much more excellent gifts of God also might seem to be despised. To these was added a third cause, that when the churches of the East, of Greece, and of Africa were kept in a constant turmoil by differences of opinion, the church of Rome was calmer and less troubled. To this it was owing that pious and holy bishops, when driven from their sees, often betook themselves to Rome as an asylum or haven. For as the people of the West are of a less and acute, versatile turn of mind than those of Asia or Africa, so they are less desirous of innovations. It therefore added very great authority to the Roman Church, that in those dubious times it was not so much unsettled as others, and adhered more firmly to the doctrine once delivered, as shall immediately be better explained. For these three causes, I say, she was held in no ordinary estimation, and received many distinguished testimonies from ancient writers. Section 17. But since on this our opponents would rear up a primacy and supreme authority over other churches, they, as I have said, greatly err. That this may better appear, I will first briefly show what the views of early writers are as to this unity which they so strongly urge. Jerome, in writing to Nepotian, after enumerating many examples of unity, descends at length to the ecclesiastical hierarchy. He says, quote, Every bishop of a church, every archpresbyter, every archdeacon, and the whole ecclesiastical order depends on its own rulers. Unquote. Here a Roman presbyter speaks and commends unity in ecclesiastical order. Why does he not mention that all the churches are bound together by one head as a common bond? There is nothing more appropriate to the point in hand and it cannot be said that he omitted it through forgetfulness. There was nothing he would more willingly have mentioned had the fact permitted. He therefore undoubtedly owns that the true method of unity is that which Cyprian admirably describes in these words. Quote, the episcopate is one, part of which is held entire by each bishop, and the church is one which by the increase of fecundity extends more widely in numbers. As there are many rays of the sun and one light, many branches of a tree and one trunk upheld by its tenacious root, and as very many streams flow from one fountain, and though numbers seem diffused by the largeness of the overflowing supply, yet unity is preserved entire in the source. So the church, pervaded with the light of the Lord, sends her rays over the whole globe, and yet is one light, 
which is everywhere diffused without separating the unity of the body, extends her branches over the whole globe and sends forth flowing streams. Still the head is one and the source one, unquote. Afterwards he says, quote, The spouse of Christ cannot be an adulteress. She knows one house and with chaste modesty keeps the sanctity of one dead, unquote. See how he makes the bishopric of Christ alone universal, as comprehending under it the whole church. See how he says that part of it is held entire by all who discharge the episcopal office under this head. Where is the primacy of the Roman see if the entire bishopric resides in Christ alone, and a part of it is held entire by each? My object in these remarks is to show the reader in passing that that axiom of the unity of an earthly kind in the hierarchy, which the Romanists assume as confessed and indubitable, was altogether unknown to the ancient church. Chapter 7 Of the beginning and rise of the Romish papacy, till it attained a height by which the liberty of the church was destroyed and all true rule overthrown. There are thirty sections. Section 1 in regard to the antiquity of the primacy of the Roman See, there is nothing in favor of its establishment more ancient than the decree of the Council of Nice, by which the first place among the patriarchs is assigned to the Bishop of Rome, and he is enjoined to take care of the suburban churches. While the council in dividing between him and the other patriarchs assigns the proper limits of each, it certainly does not appoint him head of all, but only one of the chief. Vitus and Vincentius attended on the part of Julius, who then governed the Roman church, and to them the fourth place was given. I ask, if Julius was acknowledged the head of the church, would his legates have been consigned to the fourth place? Would Athanasius have presided in the council, where a representative of the hierarchical order should have been most conspicuous? In the council of Ephesus, it appears that Celestinus, who was then Roman pontiff, used a cunning device to secure the dignity of his see. For when he sent his deputies, he made Cyril of Alexandria, who otherwise would have presided, his substitute. Why that commission, but just that his name might stand connected with the first see. His legates sit in an inferior place, or ask their opinion, along with others, and subscribe in their order, while at the same time his name is coupled with that of the Patriarch of Alexandria. What shall I say of the Second Council of Ephesus, where, while the deputies of Leo were present, the Alexandrian Patriarch Dioscorus presided as in his own right? They will object that this was not an orthodox council, since by it the venerable Flavianus was condemned. Eutyches acquitted, and his heresy approved. Yet when the council was met, and the bishops distributed the places among themselves, the deputies of the Roman church sat among the others, just as in a sacred and lawful council. Still they contend not for the first place, but yield it to another. This they never would have done if they had thought it their own by right. For the Roman bishops were never ashamed to stir up the greatest strife in contending for honors, and for this cause alone to trouble and harass the church with many pernicious contests. But because Leo saw that it would be too extravagant to ask the first place for his legates, he omitted to do it. Section 2. Next came the Council of Chalcedon, in which by concession of the emperor the legates of the Roman church occupied the first place. But Leo himself confesses that this was an extraordinary privilege, for when he asks it of the emperor Marcion and Pulcheria Augusta, he does not maintain that it is due to him, but only pretends that the eastern bishops who presided in the council of Ephesus had thrown all into confusion and made a bad use of their power. Therefore, saying there was need of a grave moderator, and it was not probable that those who had once been so fickle and tumultuous would be fit for this purpose, he requests that, because of the fault and unfitness of the others, the office of governing should be transferred to him. That which is asked as a special privilege and out of the usual order certainly is not due by a common law. 
when it is only pretended that there is need of a new president because the former ones had behaved themselves improperly, it is plain that the thing asked was not previously done and ought not to be made perpetual, being done only in respect of a present danger. The Roman Pontiff, therefore, holds the first place in the Council of Chalcedon, not because it is due to his see, but because the Council is in want of a grave and fit moderator, while those who ought to have presided exclude themselves by their intemperance and passion. This statement the successor of Leo proved by his procedure or when he sent his legates to the fifth council, that of Constantinople, which was held long after, he did not quarrel for the first seat, but readily allowed Menace, the patriarch of Constantinople, to preside. In like manner, in the council of Carthage, at which Augustine was present, we perceive that not the legates of the Roman see, but Aurelius, the archbishop of the place, presided, although there was then a question as to the authority of the Roman pontiff. Nay, even in Italy itself, a universal council was held, that of Aquileia, at which the Roman bishop was not present. Ambrose, who was then in high favor with the emperor, presided, and no mention is made of the Roman pontiff. Therefore, owing to the dignity of Ambrose, the see of Milan was then more illustrious than that of Rome. Section 3. In regard to the mere title of primate and other titles of pride, of which that pontiff now makes a wondrous boast, it is not difficult to understand how and in what way they crept in. Cyprian often makes mention of Cornelius, nor does he distinguish him by any other name than that of brother, or fellow bishop, or colleague. When he writes to Stephen, the successor of Cornelius, he not only makes him the equal of himself and others, but addresses him in harsh terms, charging him at one time with presumption, at another with ignorance. After Cyprian, we have the judgment of the whole African church on the subject, for the council of Carthage enjoined that none should be called chief of the priests, or first bishop, but only bishop of the first see. But anyone who will examine the more ancient records will find that the Roman pontiff was then contented with the common appellation of brother. Certainly, as long as the true and pure form of the church continued, all these names of pride on which the Roman see afterwards began to plume itself were altogether unheard of. None knew what was meant by the supreme pontiff, and the only head of the church on earth. Had the Roman bishop presumed to assume any such title, there were right-hearted men who would immediately have repressed this folly. Jerome, seeing he was a Roman presbyter, was not slow to proclaim the dignity of his church, in as far as fact and the circumstances of the time permitted, and yet we see how he brings it under due subordination. Quote, if authority is asked, the world is greater than a city. Why produce to me the custom of one city? Why vindicate a small number with whom superciliousness has originated against the laws of the church? Wherever the bishop be, whether at Rome or Eugubium or Constantinople or Regium, the merit is the same and the priesthood the same. The power of riches or the humbleness of poverty do not make a bishop superior or inferior. Unquote. Section 4. The controversy concerning the title of universal bishop arose at length in the time of Gregory and was occasioned by the ambition of John of Constantinople for he wished to make himself universal, a thing which no other had ever attempted. In that controversy, Gregory does not allege that he is deprived of a right which belonged to him, but he strongly insists that the appellation is profane, nay, blasphemous, nay, the forerunner of Antichrist. Quote, the whole church falls from its state, if he who is called universal falls, unquote. Again, quote, it is very difficult to bear patiently that one who is our brother and fellow bishop should alone be called bishop while all others are despised. But in this pride of his, what else is intimated but that the days of Antichrist are already near? For he is imitating him who, despising the company of angels, attempted to ascend the pinnacle of greatness, unquote. 
he elsewhere says to Eulogius of Alexandria and Anastasius of Antioch, quote, None of my predecessors ever desired to use this profane term, for if one patriarch is called universal, it is derogatory to the name of patriarch and others. But far be it from any Christian mind to wish to arrogate to itself that which would in any degree, however slight, impair the honor of his brethren, unquote. Quote, consent to that impious term is nothing else than to lose the faith, unquote. Quote, what we owe to the preservation of the unity of the faith is one thing. What we owe to the suppression of pride is another. I speak with confidence for everyone that calls himself or desires to be called universal priest is by his pride a forerunner of Antichrist, because he acts proudly in preferring himself to others, unquote. Thus again, in a letter to Anastasius of Antioch, Quote, I said that he could not have peace with us unless he corrected the presumption of a superstitious and haughty term which the first apostate invented. And, to say nothing of the injury to your honor, if one bishop is called universal, the whole church goes to ruin when that universal bishop falls, unquote. But when he writes that this honor was offered to Leo in the Council of Chalcedon, he says what has no semblance of truth. Nothing of the kind is found among the acts of that council. And Leo himself, who in many letters impugns the decree, which was then made in honor of the see of Constantinople, undoubtedly would not have omitted this argument, which was the most plausible of all, if it was true that he himself repudiated what was given to him. One who in other respects was rather too desirous of honor would not have omitted what would have been to his praise. Gregory, therefore, is incorrect in saying that that title was conferred on the Roman see by the Council of Chalcedon. Not to mention how ridiculous it is for him to say that it proceeded from that sacred council, and yet to term it wicked, profane, nefarious, proud, and blasphemous, nay, devised by the devil, and promulgated by the herald of Antichrist. And yet he adds that his predecessor refused it, lest by that which was given to one individually, all priests should be deprived of their due honor. In another place he says, quote, None ever wished to be called by such a name. None arrogated this rash name to himself, lest, by seizing on the honor of supremacy in the office of the pontificate, he might seem to deny it to all his brethren." Unquote. Section 5. I come now to jurisdiction which the Roman pontiff asserts as an incontrovertible proposition that he possesses over all churches. I am aware of the great disputes which anciently existed on this subject, for there never was a time when the Roman see did not aim at authority over other churches. And here it will not be out of place to investigate the means by which he gradually attained to some influence. I am not now referring to that unlimited power which he seized at a comparatively recent period. The consideration of that we shall defer to its own place. But it is worth while here briefly to show in what way and by what means she formerly raised herself so as to arrogate some authority over other churches. When the churches of the East were troubled and rent by the factions of the Arians, under the emperors Constantius and Constans, sons of Constantine the Great, and Athanasius, the principal defender of the Orthodox faith, had been driven from his see, the calamity obliged him to come to Rome, in order that by the authority of this see he might both repress the rage of his enemies and confirm the Orthodox under their distress. He was honorably received by Julius, who was then bishop, and engaged those of the West to undertake the defense of his cause. Therefore, when the Orthodox stood greatly in need of external aid, and perceived that their chief protection lay in the Roman See, they willingly bestowed upon it all the authority they could. But the utmost extent of this was that its communion was held in high estimation, and it was deemed ignominious to be excommunicated by it. Dishonest bad men afterwards added much to its authority, but when they wished to escape lawful tribunals, they betook themselves to Rome as an asylum. 
Accordingly, if any presbyter was condemned by his bishop, or if any bishop was condemned by the senate of his province, he appealed to Rome. These appeals the Roman bishops received more eagerly than they ought, because it seemed a species of extraordinary power to interpose in matters with which their connection was so very remote. Thus, when Eutyches was condemned by Flavianus, bishop of Constantinople, he complained to Leo that the sentence was unjust. He, nothing loath, no less presumptuously than abruptly, undertook the patronage of a bad cause, and inveighed bitterly against Flavianus, as having condemned an innocent man without due investigation. And thus the effect of Leo's ambition was that for some time the impiety of Eutyches was confirmed. It is certain that in Africa the same thing repeatedly occurred, for whenever any miscreant had been condemned by his ordinary judge, he fled to Rome, and brought many calumnious charges against his own people. The Roman see was always ready to interpose. This dishonesty obliged the African bishops to decree that no one should carry an appeal beyond sea under pain of excommunication. Section 6. Be this as it may, let us consider what right or authority the Roman see then possessed. Ecclesiastical power may be reduced to four heads, viz. ordination of bishops, calling of councils, hearing of appeals or jurisdiction, inflicting monitory chastisements or censures. All ancient councils enjoin that bishops shall be ordained by their own metropolitans. They nowhere enjoin an application to the Roman bishop except in his own patriarchate. Gradually, however, it became customary for all Italian bishops to go to Rome for consecration, with the exception of the metropolitans who did not allow themselves to be thus brought into subjection. But when any metropolitan was to be ordained, the Roman bishop sent one of his presbyters merely to be present, but not to preside. An example of this kind is extant in Gregory, in the consecration of Constantius of Milan after the death of Lawrence. I do not, however, think that this was a very ancient custom. At first, as a mark of respect and goodwill, they sent deputies to one another to witness the ordination and attest their communion. What was thus voluntary afterwards began to be regarded as necessary. However this be, it is certain that anciently the Roman bishop had no power of ordaining except within the bounds of his own patriarchate, that is, as a canon of the Council of Nice expresses it in suburban churches. To ordination was added the sending of a synodical epistle, but this applied no authority. The patriarchs were accustomed, immediately after consecration, to attest their faith by a formal writing, in which they declared that they assented to sacred and orthodox councils. Thus, by rendering an account of their faith, they mutually approved of each other. If the Roman bishop had received this confession from others and not given it, he would therein have been acknowledged superior. But when it behoved to give as well as to receive and to be subject to the common law, this was a sign of equality, not of lordship. Of this we have an example in a letter of Gregory to Anastasius and Syriac of Constantinople, and in another letter to all the patriarchs together. Section 7. Next come admonitions or censures. These the Roman bishops anciently employed towards others and in their turn received. Irenaeus sharply rebuked Victor for rashly troubling the church with a pernicious schism for a matter of no moment. He submitted without objecting. Holy bishops were then wont to use the freedom as brethren of admonishing and rebuking the Roman prelate when he happened to err. He, in his turn, when the case required, reminded others of their duty, and reprimanded them for their faults. For Cyprian, when he exhorts Stephen to admonish the bishops of France, does not found on his larger power, but on the common right which priests have in regard to each other. I ask if Stephen had then presided over France, would not Cyprian have said, quote, Check them, for they are yours, unquote. But his language is very different. 
Quote, the brotherly fellowship which binds us together requires that we should mutually admonish each other. Unquote. And we see also with what severity of expression a man otherwise of a mild temper inveighs against Stephen himself when he thinks him chargeable with insolence. Therefore, it does not yet appear in this respect that the Roman bishop possessed any jurisdiction over those who did not belong to his province. Section 8. In regard to calling of councils, it was the duty of every metropolitan to assemble a provincial senate at stated times. Here the Roman bishop had no jurisdiction, while the emperor alone could summon a general council. Had any of the bishops attempted this, not only would those out of the province not have obeyed the call, but a tumult would instantly have arisen. Therefore the emperor gave intimation to all alike to attend. Socrates indeed relates that Julius expostulated with the eastern bishops for not having called him to the council of Antioch, saying it was forbidden by the canons that anything should be decided without the knowledge of the Roman bishop. But who does not perceive that this is to be understood of those decrees which bind the whole church? At the same time, it is not strange if, in deference both to the antiquity and largeness of the city and the dignity of the sea, no universal decree concerning religion should be made in the absence of the bishop of Rome, provided he did not refuse to be present. But what has this to do with the dominion of the whole church? For we deny not that he was one of the principal bishops, though we are unwilling to admit what the Romanists now contend for, viz., that he had power over all. Section 9. The fourth remaining species of power is that of hearing appeals. It is evident that the supreme power belongs to him to whose tribunal appeals are made. Many had repeatedly appealed to the Roman pontiff. He also had endeavored to bring causes under his cognizance, but he had always been derided whenever he went beyond his own boundaries. I say nothing of the East and of Greece, but it is certain that the bishops of France stoutly resisted when he seemed to assume authority over them. In Africa the subject was long disputed, for in the council of Malavita, at which Augustine was present when those who carried appeals beyond seas were excommunicated, the Roman pontiff attempted to obtain an alteration of the decree and sent legates to show that the privilege of hearing appeals was given to him by the council of Nice. The legates produced acts of the council drawn from the armory of their church. The African bishops resisted and maintained that credit was not to be given to the bishop of Rome in his own cause. Accordingly, they said that they would send to Constantinople and other cities of Greece where less suspicious copies might be had. It was found that nothing like what the Romanists had pretended was contained in the Acts, and thus the decree which abrogated the supreme jurisdiction of the Roman pontiff was confirmed. In this matter was manifested the egregious effrontery of the Roman pontiff, for when he had fraudulently substituted the Council of Sardis for that of Nice, he was disgracefully detected in a palpable falsehood. But still greater and more impudent was the iniquity of those who added a fictitious letter to the council, in which some bishop of Carthage condemns the arrogance of Aurelius, his predecessor, in promising to withdraw himself from obedience to the apostolic see, and making a surrender of himself and his church, suppliantly prays for pardon. These are the noble records of antiquity on which the majesty of the Roman See is founded, while, under the pretext of antiquity, they deal in falsehoods so puerile that even a blind man might feel them. Quote, Aurelius, says he, elated by diabolical audacity and contumacy, was rebellious against Christ and St. Peter, and accordingly deserved to be anathematized. Unquote. What does Augustine say? And what the many fathers who were present at the Council of Melavita? But what need is there to give a lengthened refutation to that absurd writing which not even Romanists, if they have any modesty left them, can look at without a deep feeling of shame? Thus Gratian, whether through malice or ignorance, I know not, after quoting the decree that those are to be deprived of communion who carry appeals beyond seas, 
subjoins the exception, unless perhaps they have appealed to the Roman sea. What can you make of creatures like these who are so devoid of common sense that they set down as an exception from the law the very thing on account of which, as everybody sees, the law was made? For the council in condemning transmarine appeals simply prohibits an appeal to Rome. Yet this worthy expounder accepts Rome from the common law. Section 10. But, to end the question at once, the kind of jurisdiction which belonged to the Roman bishop, one narrative will make manifest. Donatus of Casa Nigra had accused Cecilianus, the bishop of Carthage. Cecilianus was condemned without a hearing. For, having ascertained that the bishops had entered into a conspiracy against him, he refused to appear. The case was brought before the emperor Constantine, who, wishing the matter to be ended by an ecclesiastical decision, gave the cognizance of it to Melchiades, the Roman bishop, appointing as his colleague some bishops from Italy, France, and Spain. If it formed part of the ordinary jurisdiction of the Roman see to hear appeals in ecclesiastical causes, why did he allow others to be conjoined with him at the emperor's discretion? Nay, why does he undertake to decide more from the command of the emperor than his own office? But let us hear what afterwards happened. Cecilianus prevails. Donatus of Casanegra is thrown in his calumnious action and appeals. Constantine devolves the decision of the appeal on the bishop of Arle, who sits as judge to get sentence after the Roman pontiff. If the Roman see has supreme power, not subject to appeal, why does Melchiades allow himself to be so greatly insulted as to have the bishop of Arle preferred to him? And who is the emperor that does this? Constantine who they boast not only made it his constant study, but employed all the resources of the empire to enlarge the dignity of that see. We see, therefore, how far in every way the Roman pontiff was from that supreme dominion which he asserts to have been given him by Christ over all churches, and which he falsely alleges that he possessed in all ages with the consent of the whole world. Section 11 I know how many epistles there are, how many rescripts and edicts in which there is nothing which the pontiffs do not ascribe and confidently arrogate to themselves. But all men of the least intellect and learning know that the greater part of them are in themselves so absurd that it is easy at the first sight to detect the forge from which they have come. Does any man of sense and soberness think that Anacletus is the author of that famous interpretation which is given in Gratian under the name of Anacletus, viz., that Cephas is head? Numerous follies of the same kind which Gratian had heaped together without judgment the Romanists of the present day employ against us in defense of their see. The smoke by which in the former days of ignorance they imposed upon the ignorant they would still vend in the present light. I am unwilling to take much trouble in refuting things which, by their extreme absurdity, plainly refute themselves. I admit the existence of genuine epistles by ancient pontiffs in which they pronounce magnificent eulogiums on the extent of their see. Such are some of the epistles of Leo, for as he possessed learning and eloquence, so he was excessively desirous of glory and dominion. But the true question is, whether or not, when he thus extolled himself, the churches gave credit to his testimony. It appears that many were offended with his ambition, and also resisted his cupidity. He in one place appoints the bishop of Thessalonica his vicar throughout Greece and other neighboring regions and elsewhere gives the same office to the bishop of Arlais or some other throughout France. In like manner he appointed Hormistus, bishop of Hispala, his vicar throughout Spain, but he uniformly makes this reservation that in giving such commissions the ancient privileges of the metropolitans were to remain safe and entire. These appointments, therefore, were made on the condition that no bishop should be impeded in his ordinary jurisdiction, no metropolitan in taking cognizance of appeals, no provincial council in constituting churches. 
But what else was this than to decline all jurisdiction and to interpose for the purpose of settling discord only insofar as the law and the nature of ecclesiastical communion admit? Section 12. In the time of Gregory that ancient rule was greatly changed. For when the empire was convulsed and torn, when France and Spain were suffering from the many disasters which they ever and anon received, when Illyricum was laid waste, Italy harassed, and Africa almost destroyed by uninterrupted calamities, in order that, during these civil convulsions, the integrity of the faith might remain, or at least not entirely perish, the bishops in all quarters attached themselves more to the Roman pontiff. In this way, not only the dignity, but also the power of the sea, exceedingly increased, although I attach no great importance to the means by which this was accomplished. It is certain that it was then greater than in former ages, and yet it was very different from the unbridled dominion of one ruling others as he pleased. Still, the reverence paid to the Roman sea was such that by its authority it could guide and repress those whom their own colleagues were unable to keep to their duty. For Gregory is careful ever and anon to testify that he was not less faithful in preserving the rights of others than in insisting that his own should be preserved. Quote, I do not, unquote, says he, quote, under the stimulus of ambition, derogate from any man's rights, but desire to honor my brethren in all things, unquote. There is no sentence in his writings in which he boasts more proudly of the extent of his primacy than the following, quote, I know not what bishop is not subject to the Roman see when he is discovered in a fault, unquote. However, he immediately adds, quote, where faults do not call for interference, all are equal according to the rule of humility, unquote. He claims for himself the right of correcting those who have sinned. If all do their duty, he puts himself on a footing of equality. He indeed claimed this right, and those who chose assented to it, while those who were not pleased with it were at liberty to object with impunity. And it is known that the greater part did so. We may add that he is then speaking of the primate of Byzantium, who, when condemned by a provincial synod, repudiated the whole judgment. His colleagues had informed the emperor of his contumacy, and the emperor had given the cognizance of the matter to Gregory. We see, therefore, that he does not interfere in any way with the ordinary jurisdiction, and that, in acting as a subsidiary to others, he acts entirely by the emperor's command. Section 13 at this time, therefore, the whole power of the Roman bishop consisted in opposing stubborn and ungovernable spirits, where some extraordinary remedy was required, and this in order to assist other bishops not to interfere with them. Therefore, he assumes no more power over others than he elsewhere gives others over himself, when he confesses that he is ready to be corrected by all, amended by all. So, in another place, though he orders the bishop of Aquileia to come to Rome to plead his cause in a controversy as to doctrine which had arisen between himself and others, he thus orders not of his own authority, but in obedience to the emperor's command. Nor does he declare that he himself will be sole judge, but promises to call a synod by which the whole business may be determined. But although the moderation was still such, that the power of the Roman see had certain limits which it was not permitted to overstep, and the Roman bishop himself was not more above than under others, it appears how much Gregory was dissatisfied with this state of matters, for he ever and anon complains that he, under the color of the episcopate, was brought back to the world and was more involved in earthly cares than when living as a lake, that he in that honorable office was oppressed by the tumult of secular affairs. Elsewhere he says, quote, So many burdensome occupations depress me that my mind cannot at all rise to things above. I am shaken by the many billows of causes and after they are quieted, am afflicted by the tempests of a tumultuous life, so that I may truly say I am come into the depths of the sea, and the flood has overwhelmed me, unquote. 
From this I infer what he would have said if he had fallen on the present times. If he did not fulfill, he at least did the duty of a pastor. He declined the administration of civil power, and acknowledged himself subject, like others, to the emperor. He did not interfere with the management of other churches, unless forced by necessity. And yet he thinks himself in a labyrinth, because he cannot devote himself entirely to the duty of a bishop. Section 14. At that time, as has already been said, the bishop of Constantinople was disputing with the bishop of Rome for the primacy. For after the seat of empire was fixed at Constantinople, the majesty of the empire seemed to demand that that church should have the next place of honor to that of Rome. And certainly at the outset, nothing had tended more to give the primacy to Rome than that it was then the capital of the empire. In Gratian, there is a rescript under the name of Pope Lucinus, to the effect that the only way in which the cities where metropolitans and primates ought to preside were distinguished was by means of the civil government which had previously existed. There is a similar rescript under the name of Pope Clement, in which he says that patriarchs were appointed in those cities which had previously had the first flamens. Although this is absurd, it was borrowed from what was true, for it is certain that in order to make as little change as possible, provinces were distributed according to the state of matters then existing, and primates and metropolitans were placed in those cities which surpassed others in honors and power. Accordingly, it was decreed in the Council of Turin that the cities of every province which were first in the civil government should be the first sees of bishops. But if it should happen that the honor of civil government was transferred from one city to another, then the right of the metropolis should be at the same time transferred thither. But Innocent, the Roman pontiff, seeing that the ancient dignity of the city had been decaying ever since the seat of empire had been transferred to Constantinople, and, fearing for his see, enacted a contrary law in which he denies the necessity of changing metropolitan churches, as imperial metropolitan cities were changed. But the authority of a synod is justly to be preferred to the opinion of one individual, and Innocent himself should be suspected in his own cause. However this be, he by his caveat shows the original rule to have been that metropolitans should be distributed according to the order of the empire. Section 15. Agreeably to this ancient custom, the first council of Constantinople decreed that the bishop of that city should take precedence after the Roman pontiff, because it was a new Rome. But long after, when a similar decree was made at Chalcedon, Leo keenly protested. And not only did he permit himself to set at naught what six hundred bishops or more had decreed, but he even assailed them with bitter reproaches, because they had derogated from other sees in the honor which they had presumed to confer on the church of Constantinople. What prey could have incited the man to trouble the world for so small an affair, but mere ambition? He says that what the Council of Nice had once sanctioned ought to have been inviolable, as if the Christian faith was in any danger if one church was preferred to another or as if separate patriarchates had been established on any other grounds than that of policy. But we know that policy varies with times, nay, demands various changes. It is therefore futile in Leo to pretend that the see of Constantinople ought not to receive the honor which was given to that of Alexandria by the authority of the Council of Nice. For it is the dictate of common sense that the decree was one of those which might be abrogated in respect of a change of times, what shall we say to the fact that none of the eastern churches, though chiefly interested, objected? Proterius, who had been appointed at Alexandria instead of Dioscorus, was certainly present. Other patriarchs, whose honor was impaired, were present. It belonged to them to interfere, not to Leo, whose station remained entire. While all of them are silent, many assent, and the Roman bishop alone resists, it is easy to judge what it is that moves him just because he foresaw what happened not long after, that when the glory of ancient Rome declined, Constantinople, not contented with the second place, would dispute the primacy with her. 
and yet his clamor was not so successful as to prevent the decree of the council from being ratified. Accordingly, his successors, seeing themselves defeated, quietly desisted from that petulance, and allowed the bishop of Constantinople to be regarded as the second patriarch. This Reformation audio resource is a production of Stillwater's Revival Books. Many free resources, as well as our complete mail-order catalog, containing classic and contemporary Puritan and Reformed books, CDs, and much more at great discounts, are on the web at www.swrb.com. We can also be reached by email at swrb at swrb.com, by phone at 780-450-3730, by fax at 780-468-1096, or by mail at 4710-37A Avenue, Edmonton, AB, Canada, T6L3T5. If you do not have a web connection, please request a free printed catalog. If you do have a web connection and would like to be added to our email list, please send an email to add at swrb.com or swrb at swrb.com with the word add in the subject line. SWRB's email list is a double opt-in list. So once you've sent out your email address, you will be asked by email to confirm that you want to join our list using the email address you have supplied. Your email information will be kept confidential, and you can easily remove yourself from our email list by simply emailing us at swrb at swrb.com with the word remove in the subject line. Once you are on our email list, you will be alerted to all the new free Reformation resources, free MP3s, free electronic books and text, etc. SWRB makes available on the web, as well as at times to our best discounts and super specials. We also encourage you to reproduce this audio resource and to pass it on to your friends, but we only authorize this as long as the full content of the message, including the header and trailer, is not altered in any way and as long as the audio file or cassette is given away for free. Thank you again for listening to this SWRB reading, and remember that Isaiah 26.3 states, Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. And 2 Corinthians 13.11 concludes, Finally, brethren, farewell. Be perfect, be of good comfort, be of one mind, live in peace, and the God of love and peace shall be with you.